Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Discourse Collective. I'm Celery. I'm joined today by Vicky. Hi, I'm Vicky at Death Pigeon on uh, Twitter. And we're back for another round of the Sterner mini series. So if you're listening to this, that means you're one of our Patreon subscribers. So thank you again for subscribing. We hope you enjoy this premium theory content. Thank you for getting us our drug money. <laughs> <laughs> so, um,. On the last episode, we discussed the free, and that section was pretty much just Sterner owning libs. And by libs, we mean the moderns. Yeah. Right? And he discussed three different types of libs. Um, do you remember what those were? There's political liberals, who are basically who we think of when we uh, say liberal. There's social the social liberals who are social sort of covering lots of socialists though not all of them obviously and yeah the social liberals kind of reminded me of like social democrats i guess yeah they wanted like a perfect liberalism and finally the humane liberals who are the ones who are super near into critique and into humanity and stuff like that I think the humane liberals uh, align very closely, but not perfectly, with uh, who Marx described as the crude communists, or Engels might have characterized as the utopian socialists. Idealists. Yeah, definitely. Um, In this section that we're going to be discussing today, this section is entitled Ownness. Well, one of the sections we're discussing. Right. Well... I think the other sections that we're discussing fall under ownness, right? Uh, no. Uh, this is all falling under the, uh, yeah, section, uh, the second part of the book, I, but ownness is a separate section from the owner. That's right, the owner, right. And my power falls under uh, the owner. Right. Under the owner, we have my power, my intercourse, and my self-enjoyment. Today we're only going to be getting to my power. My intercourse is a much longer, denser section that might take up two episodes, and then we'll get to my self-enjoyment after that. It's but today we're going to, yeah. My my intercourse is the longest section in this book. Yeah, I 110 thought. pages. So today we'll just be discussing the section on ownness, the introduction to the owner, and the section on my power. And ownness is a, dare I say, unique concept within Sterner um, that has to do a lot with the idea of the unique. Um, what What is ownness, if you had to sum it up real quick before we get into this? Ownness is his, ownness is his basic idea of property and ownership, which he apply, which sort of works for here self ownership but also ownership of other things but he works on it in a unique way compared to others who tackle the concept right and when sterner talks about property he not only means property in the sense of things that are mine things like uh my chair that i'm sitting in right now or my desk that i'm sitting at or my microphone that i'm speaking into but he also means my properties my countless 
qualities and characteristics that make me a unique, that make me me and not you, or that make me me and not anybody else. And these properties, um, some of them are or can be phantasms, like a human being. I am a human being. I am a podcaster, right? But I'm not just a human being or just a podcaster. These are merely properties, uh, two properties among many properties that I have that make me unique. Most broadly, his conception of ownness would be that which is a part of you. He discusses this, yes, when he's discussing uh, how it's your arm, and when it gets removed from your body, well, it's no longer your arm, it's the corpse of your arm. It's not yours. It's not a part of your ownness. That's... I'm going to read the introduction to part 2.1 in full uh, because I really enjoyed it. Sterner writes, At the entrance of the modern era stands the God-Man. Will only the God in the God-Man evaporate at its exit? And can the God-Man really die if only the God in him dies? They didn't think of this question and considered themselves finished when in our day they brought the work of the Enlightenment, the overcoming of God, to a victorious end. They didn't notice that the human being has killed God in order to now become soul God on high. The other world outside us is indeed swept away, and the great enterprise of the men of the Enlightenment is accomplished. But the other world inside us has become a new heaven, and calls us forth to storm the heavens once again. God has had to make way, but not for us, rather for humanity. How can you believe the God-man has died before the man in him, as well as the God, has died? So the Enlightenment Project is not over. Or, really, the Enlighten Enlightenment Project was flawed from the start. Because the Enlightenment oh. Project was only ever going after God, and never going after man. Man was holy to the Enlightenment Project, and so they didn't touch man. And that led to them just leaving us still enslaved to this higher being inside us. The idea of man, the idea of humanity, or of the human being, the ideal of the human being, that is what they placed on a pedestal. That is what they raised above us to be our, our new idol, effectively. Yeah. So, ownness. He's... Doesn't the mind thirst for freedom? I love how he starts it off. Oh, not just my mind, but my body also thirsts for it, hour after hour. He, um kind of leads us into this playful discussion about you know what is freedom right what does it mean to be free what do you want to be free from to be free from something means to be rid of it right yeah and the yoke of bondage of feudal sovereignty of aristocracy the rule of desires and passions and yes even the rule of one's own will of self-will for the most thorough self-denial is nothing but freedom and he's going through and he's doing this to contrast freedom, and ownness. He says, I have no objection to freedom, but I want more than freedom for you. You should not just be rid of what you do, don't want. You should also have what you want, 
should not just be a free man. He should also be an owner. He, right. So he doesn't just that, want to free you from the things that control you, but give you control over the things that are important to you. Right, and I like how he does this. He frames freedom as a negative thing and ownership as a positive thing. Yeah. To be free is to be rid of something, to own is to have. I know some critics of Stirner have uh, talked about how, oh, he had an incomplete project. It was only focused on this negative project of getting rid of these bad of these things but never completed itself into a positive project often with them suggesting nietzsche to complete the project but here when we get to his concept of ownness we find the positive side of his project the thing he wants you to have in addition to the thing he wants you to be rid of yeah, and he, you know, he points out furthermore, there's a big difference between freedom and ownness. He says, one can get rid of a lot, but one doesn't get rid of everything. One becomes free from much, but not from all. Being free is something that I cannot truly will, because I cannot make it. I cannot create it. I can only wish for it and strive for it, because it remains an ideal, a phantasm. So to be free to Sterner is something that is unattainable by definition, by its very nature. You can't be rid of everything, so you can never be truly, completely, and absolutely free. And it's also something destructive to it. You can't create—it's not something where you're creating something new, just destroying old things. And that's important, but that can't ever be it, be everything. You also have to create, and that's where ownness comes in. It's the creative part of the creative nothing. I also love this part when he um, he's kind of dunking on libs here in, in this ideal of freedom that they hold so highly. In this passage, he says, The charming dream melts away. Awakened, one rubs one's half-opened eyes and stares at the prosaic questioner. What should people be free from? From blind belief, one cries. What's that? Another exclaims. All faith is blind belief. They must become free from all faith. No, no, for God's sake, the first goes off again. Don't throw all faith away from you, otherwise the power of brutality breaks in. We must have the republic, a third one can be heard, and get free from all commanding lords. That's no help at all, says a fourth. We just get a new lord then, a ruling majority. Rather let us free ourselves from this dreadful inequality. Oh, happy, unhappy equality, again I hear your uncouth roar. How I had dreamed just now so beautifully of a paradise of freedom, and what impudence and lack of restraint now raise their wild hue and cry. So the first laments, and pulls himself together to take up the sword against excessive freedom. <laughs> Quickly we hear nothing but the clashing of swords of the disagreeing dreamers of freedom. And I know people who have been every role in that absolutely uh and this is a, a great point people can't agree on what exactly freedom is and there's a reason for that it's not really anything it's just this this formless ideal it's empty and he says how you know in every instance that he just laid out the urge for freedom has come to the desire for a specific freedom and the problem with specific freedoms is they always entail a new rule yeah, you can't be free from the commanding 
lords without sneaking in the rule of the majority. You can't be free from, um, um, I don't know, blind belief without sneaking in the rule of reason. There's always a new ruler who comes in when you just target these specific unfreedoms. Even when you look at the freedoms that we supposedly enjoy as Americans, these freedoms are uh, supposedly uh, inalienable rights, right? Um, but according to whom? Uh, the state. We put the state in charge of protecting these rights. And what the state giveth, the state may taketh away. That, of course, is getting ahead of ourselves. Yes, <laughs> that is true. Well, before we get too far ahead of ourselves, what's next? Well, uh, uh, he's he's discussing. He also discusses in this section the way ownness can provide us with freedom, but not freedom as an ideal, but freedom as something that is truly ours. As, uh, Let me know what page you're looking at when you find. Uh, what you're I'm at uh, 178 and 179. Mm -hmm. uh, the former is free from the beginning because he recognizes nothing but himself. He does not need to free himself first because from the start he rejects everything outside himself because he prizes nothing more than himself, deems nothing higher than himself. In short, because he starts from himself and comes to himself, constrained by filial respect, He's, he is still working to free himself of this constraint. Onus works in the little egoist and gets him the desired freedom. And he's talking here, here about how onus helps free uh, children, while desi the desiring for freedom just doesn't really work out. He, they need this freedom. They, sorry, they need this onus to get them their the freedom they wish, rather than simply relying on freedom. And again here on uh, 181, says, My freedom becomes complete only when it, is in, when it is my power. But by this, I cease to be merely a free person and become an own person. Why is the freedom of the people a hollow word? Because the people have no power. With a breath from the living eye, I blow peoples over, whether it's the breath of a Nero, a Chinese emperor, or a poor writer. Why then do the chambers of the German parliament yearn in vain for freedom and get lectured for it by the cabinet ministers? Because they are not powerful. Power is a fine matter and useful for many things, for one goes further with a handful of power than a bagful of rights. You long for freedom, you fools. If you took power, then freedom would come of itself. See one who has power stands above the law. How does this view taste to you, you law-abiding people? You have no taste. Yeah, uh, here we see another important concept that he's developing, and that is the concept of power. Um, and I think Sterner uses power in a similar but not exactly the same way as we might use power in a colloquial sense. He's sort of using power as the ability to control things or to exert your will over something. Right. Um, your property only extends so far as you can grasp, right? Exactly. And your ability to grasp that which you want or which you desire, that is your power. Um, and now I think one 
sentence or one fragment from this paragraph that really drives the point home, that really uh, makes clear just how profound what Stirner is saying here, is he says that one goes further with a handful of power than with a bag full of rights. Yeah, you with just a little bit of power, you do more than you can ever get with just the assurance that you have the right to this because power allows you to do things while freedom just rids you of things not only that but power is within your control and right is external to you that too yeah there's no guarantee of right you know regardless of uh, the these light the rights in the constitution are guaranteed to you but no not that's not an absolute guarantee but power is under your control. Your power is yours and yours alone. And when power fails you, it's because you either didn't have enough of it or you didn't use it. It's up to you to control that power and to make sure that you have enough of it to get what you want. Yeah, and this idea of, you know, you may have had this power but failed to utilize it, um, on the previous page on 179... Uh, Stirner tells us, for thousands of years, thousands of years of civilized culture have obscured what you are to you, have made you believe that you are not egoists, but called to be idealists. Shake that off. Stirner's telling us we are egoists. You are. You don't become an egoist. You realize that you have been this whole time. The idea that we are citizens, or that we are human beings, or that we are this or that ideal... They're all phantasms. They're, it's idealism. We're not this or that ideal or phantasm or uh, whatever. We are egoists. Yeah. You merely have to realize, recognize yourselves, he says. Wake up, sheeple. <laughs> yeah, that's sort of what yet he's doing in a way here, but in a less cringy way. <laughs> you can take the blue pill. Are they? Or you can uh, take the red You can pill. take the sterner pill. <laughs> also earlier, he has a interesting discussion about uh, slaves and uh, what slaves have. He discusses how... Uh, let me find the section. Uh, 170, page 172 earlier. Uh, he's talking about what a difference between freedom and owners. And he's saying how a slave will always have a few freedoms, be rid of some things, never be fully free. There's always going to be something constraining the slave, but the slave also always has some measure of ownness. At the very least, the slave's arm is the slave's own. They have that within their power, and they can choose what to do with that. And... So the slave isn't ever truly free, but always has something that they own. And that cannot be taken away from you, because that's just the result of you exercising your power. On the other hand, I was my... I was own. My own. Completely, inwardly, and outwardly. Under the rule of a cruel master, my body is not free from torments and lashes, but it is my bones that grow under the torture, my fibers that twitch under the blows, and I groan because my body groans, and I sigh and shiver 
pr proves that I that I sigh and shiver. Proves that I have not yet lost myself. That I am still my own. My leg is not free from the master's stick, but is my leg, leg and is inseparable. Let him tear it off me and see if he still has my leg. He has nothing in his hands but the corpse of my leg, which is as little my leg as a dead dog is a, still a dog. A dog mm -hmm. that has a beating heart, a so-called dead dog has none, and so is no longer a dog. And he's saying that this ownness is something we all have inherently, not, not because we are given it, not because yes, we have it by right, but because it's just the result of us having power over ourselves, even if it's yet in a small way, and us being inseparable from ourselves. We own our bodies because we control it. I can I move my hand, and so it is mine. It's my hand and my body. As long as your heart still beats. You are still an owner of at least that. At the end of this section, he wraps it up. If I am not concerned about a thing in and for itself, and do not desire it for its own sake, then I desire it only for the advantage it gives, for its usefulness, for the sake of another end, such as oysters for a pleasant flavor. Not sure about that uh, particular example of oysters, but he continues, Now won't everything whose final end he himself is serve the egoist as a means? And should he protect a thing that serves him for nothing? For example... Should the proletarian protect the state? <laughs> Ownness includes all that is own in itself, and again makes honorable what Christian language dishonored. But ownness also has no alien standard, as it is not at all an idea like freedom, morality, humanity, etc. It is only a description of the owner. And that brings us into the second section, the next section where Who covered. is the owner? Yeah, the owner. And the owner is the one who uh, quote tweets uh, stupid liberals on uh, Twitter. <laughs> Which is what Sterner does here, actually, because he opens up by saying, who does the liberal regard as his equals? Why, human beings, of course. If you're only a human being, and that you certainly are, the liberal... He'll calls you his brother. He asks very li little about your private opinions, your private follies, if he can just see the human being in you. But since he takes little notice of what you are, you are private him, indeed, lays no value on it. In strict observance of his principle, he sees only what you are in and generatum. In other words... In the general sense. He sees you generally as a human in, being. In other words... He sees you, he sees in you not you, but the species, not Hans or Kuhns, but the human being, not the actual or unique one, but your essence or concept, not the embodied individual, but the spirit. And so he's basically just saying, liberals don't give a shit about you. Liberals, they don't, liberals, which is absolutely yeah. true. <laughs> they only care about the human being. Right. And... You know, we can look at today liberals' obsession with numbers and statistics, right? Um, yeah. Look at the un look at the unemployment rate. You know, we only have five percent, four percent unemployment. You know, they care that uh, they care about the rate. They care about the number. They don't care. Uh, 
you know, a 4% unemployment rate means that 4% of the population doesn't have a job. They don't have a way of feeding themselves, you know. They don't care about that, you know. They don't care about those 4%. They just care about the number. They don't care about the people who fall under that number, you know. And you can also see this in the in many ways how uh, liberals treat people of color. They uh, And also queer people. They put forward people of color and queer people as these as standard bearers for liberalism but once they start disagreeing with liberals they throw them under the bus and because they aren't actually caring about what the individual person of color or what the individual queer person actually wants or actually believes they just care about the queerness and the yeah blackness or the asianness of that that specific person of that person and cares about that in general because a perfect example yeah. of this is the recent election with Hillary Clinton who ran not as a democrat but as a woman yeah <laughs> and you can all you can also see this in the way they many of them treat a Chelsea Manning they were all gung ho about oh look at yeah her she's a trans woman shows a great example of you have the courage of trans women and stuff, but then she started disagreeing with the liberal dogma, and all of a sudden, they're like, whoa, whoa, you can't do that. The conservatives were right, you're a traitor. Yeah. Yeah. And you can also see this with how they treat criticisms of, I don't know, Kamala Harris. They ignore the criticism entirely in order to focus purely on, oh, you're criticizing a woman or oh you're criticizing a person of color therefore that's all that matters right right um i still think that hillary is the perfect example of this because again um her you know her slogan or whatever was i'm with her and you know the focus of her campaign was on her womanness and not on her policies or her principles and whenever she came under fire this or that criticism um this wasn't known or really widespread before the election, but uh, for some reason liberals continue to defend her and be mad about the fact that they lost. But um, something that's come up since the election is that we found out that uh, during her time in the governor's mansion, uh, she benefited greatly from slave labor. And uh, the, the liberals do not care about <laughs> the about Hillary's slaves. You know, um, they, they don't care about them. And when they... Despite the fact that they are individual human beings, they are not, they are not politically expedient <laughs> as individuals yeah. uh, to the liberal mind. Yeah, and so liberals aren't seeing you as a person. Liberals are seeing you as an identity, as a species, as a member of a whole. And it's that whole that they care about, not you the individual it's that whole that they're trying to benefit they care about the lgbt brand but not about the unique individual gay person or the unique individual trans person but enough about the libs (laughs) though we'll get back to them we'll get back to them we could wax poetic about their Many shortcomings all day long, I'm sure. And Steiner definitely does not spare them of criticism. 
the liberals are pious atheists, right? Yeah. And to be pious, one must have a religion. To be atheist, one must reject a belief in God. So what is the religion of the liberals? The human religion. the, The human religion. And what is the human religion? Only the final metamorphosis of the Christian religion. (laughs) Liberalism is a religion since it separates my essence from me and sets it above me. Since it exalts humanity to the same extent that some other religion would its god or its idol. It places me beneath the human and thereby creates a calling for me. A call to be the human being. Since Sterner goes on. One could call it the state religion, but as the religion which the free state is not only entitled, but is compelled to demand of each of its people, regardless of whether privately he is Jewish or Christian or whatever. What I'm reminded of with his description of liberalism is during the Roman Empire, there was Mm -hmm. mystery cults and there was the imperial cult. Everyone had to follow the imperial cult. They had to give sacrifices to the uh, gods of the imperial cult, give uh, prayers to the emperor, and hear stuff like that. But everyone could also choose a mystery cult, which would focus on individual gods or goddesses and individual secret rites, which they only they were only they had to uh, follow. And so they didn't. They could follow both the imperial. They all had to follow the imperial cult. But then you could choose among all the different mystery cults. And in the modern day, this human religion, humanism, has become the imperial cult that everyone has to follow. But you mm-hmm. can still follow Christianity or your know, Judaism or whatever, so long as you're still following the human religion of liberalism. And, um, you know, you have to follow this state religion, this liberalism, in order to be considered a human being. And if you reject this straight, uh, this state religion, if you reject liberalism, then you are an inhuman monster. And he plays around a lot with the difference and ultimately the sameness of humanity and, inhum- and inhumanity and the way a human and uh, inhuman monster he's talking about how they're treated differently mm-hmm. but in the end they are the same thing right the individual inhuman monster is still a human being but because he doesn't live up to the ideal of a human being as set about by the state the state excludes him locks him up throws him in a jail a mental asylum whatever yeah, and so, and this includes, I'm thinking of a later search, sorry, uh, and so he's talking about how, you know, uh, blah, 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 only the inhuman monster is an actual human being, because, the, sorry, my, I lost track of my thought. Well, only the inhuman monster is an actual human being, because he acts on his humanity as an individual, he yeah. rejects the ideal of the human being the mold that the state has constructed for him to fit into and he acts for himself right because the inhuman monster is the egoist and sterner says when the state tells us uh, to act on our humanity what it's really telling us is to act on our morality the state 
religion, the state's ideal of the human being, is its own morality. Yeah. And he's saying, now, this doesn't make any sense, because, listen, if thus I see the humanity in you, as I see the humanity in me, and see nothing but the humanity, then I take care of you the way I take care of myself, because we both signify nothing but the mathematical proposition, A equals C, and B equals C. Therefore, A equals B. That is to say, I am nothing but a human being, and you are nothing but a human being. Thus, I and you are the same. Morality, such as this, is not compatible with egoism, because it doesn't accept me, but only the humanity in me. But if the state is a society of human beings, and not a union of eyes each of whom only looks out for himself, then it cannot exist without morality and must attach importance to morality. Therefore, the two of us, the state and I, are enemies. I sacrifice nothing to the state. I only use it. But to be able to use it completely, I transform it instead into my property and my creation. In other words, I destroy the state, and in its place, I form the association of egoists. And that was translated in, a, the, in the earlier translation, the Byington translation, as union of egoists. Now, what do you... Th I think that it's interesting because the union of egoists is a pretty big concept in Sterner um, and in, in egoism. Yeah. And I, I think it's it really stuck out to me when I was reading this that, first of all, that uh, Landstriker chose to translate this differently, first of all, but second of all, he did not include a notation here explaining why he <laughs> translated it differently. So uh, what do you... I mean, did that stand out to you? Did you get anything out of this? Do you think there's okay. a... A difference between association and union? I, I think he did it because there's a, there was a lot of people coming away from the phrase union of egoists with a lot of misunderstandings. People mm -hmm. thought, lots of people came out, read union of egoists and thought, oh, they mean like a trading or a industrial. Uh, he, people see the phrase union of egoists and think, oh, it's like an union you form at your work when it's that's interesting i'd never made that uh, association before but yeah i can see yeah but and i i get that you lots of people don't make that association but enough people do that it's really annoying <laughs> and the the other problem with union of egoists is it's... what's your occupation oh i'm an egoist <laughs> i'm an egoist by trade and my father was an egoist before me and his father was also... <laughs> and association also differs from union because it's... Unions of egoists aren't supposed to be this really formal structure. And union gives the sense that it's a more formal structure than yeah, it is. Yeah, exactly. That's how I read it. And association is a much looser... Yeah, you're not forming a actual organization you're just associating with each other and right. working together to uh to your own ends right this is my associate this is an associate of mine this is somebody i associate with you know and as an associate is someone the bonds between you come and go right and that's a uh, very important part of uh associations of egoists mm -hmm. the bonds in an association of egoists aren't are never permanent they only last as long as 
you need them to last. As long as there is a mutually beneficial relationship between the egoists in question and neither violates the NAP. <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. This is... Egoism is the logical endpoint of libertarianism. <laughs> that, you know, I, I seriously think that we can sterner pill uh, right libertarians if we go about it the correct way. Oh, I've been trying. <laughs> uh maybe uh when we finish this premium series we'll have to release it publicly and just dump it in all the libertarian breeding grounds so we have this association of egoists and as far as i can recall he just mentions it here and doesn't revisit it for the rest of this section at least i um, he does get back to it i believe in uh yeah, my intercourse, and he definitely gets back to it in uh, Stierner's Critics. Okay, good. So we will revisit this concept later. But the fact that he just kinds of he just kind of drops it and goes on with the rest of what he was saying, um, I think that in a way kind of speaks to the nature of the association of egoists. It's not this, like we said, it's not like a union or a more formal structure that needs to be intensely developed. Um, you know, it's it's a, a it's a looser thing, and he will develop it later. And um, it's yeah. also a part of his writing style too. You'll notice this is true. You'll notice yeah. back in uh, the free, he just offhandedly mentioned ownness, and then just kept on going, and then. Later, he gets in and he just dives into what is ownness and how does it differ from freedom. And he does that a lot. He also did it with dropping down the, a fragment of his critique of the free competition then just moving on. He does that with a lot of things. Well, let's uh, take a, a play from the Book of Sterner and uh, move on ourselves to the next point. Um, I liked this bit where he... He quotes Fichte, and he says, Fichte says, the I is all. And this seems to harmonize perfectly with my statements. But it's not that the I is all, but the I destroys all. And only the self-dissolving I, the never-being I, the finite I, is actually I. Fichte speaks of the absolute I, but I speak of me, the transient I. Here, and I think, yeah, this is really his critique of that idea of the ego. There's no me there that's there the whole time. There's just I right now. Right. The I of a year ago is not the same I of right now, or even the I of five minutes ago is not the same I it's as the I of right now. Fine. It's always finite. Finite, transient. transient. I like the word dynamic dynamic yes he does he doesn't use that word but yeah the eye is dynamic constantly changing i mean we can't we're we're always constantly bombarded with inputs right we take in the world around us through our senses we're constantly coming across new bits of information that have subtle or profound effects on who we are as human beings as uniques yeah and so the eye can never be static I, so it is in some people, but <laughs> the, these are insufferably boring individuals. But all, also this ties in with his 
conception of the unique. You're not just unique in how you're different from someone else or you know, how I do not equal you. You're also unique in how I now do not equal I then. You're unique over time right. as well as over space. Constantly unique. Always dissolving the I and creating a new I in every moment. You're constantly getting off your bullshit and immediately getting back on. <laughs> I like that. Ooh, I, l I like this bit, how he describes the human being as the last evil spirit or phantasm. Not just any old spirit or phantasm, but an evil one. The human being is the last evil spirit or phantasm, the most deceptive and the most intimate, the craftiest liar with the honest face, the father of lies. And that's, of course, a name that uh, is often applied to the devil. Yeah, and, you know, just this indictment of the human being, right? This is the ideal that we've held up as a society for the past three centuries, you know, the liberal concept of the human being, of humanity. And Sterner is telling us, no, this is the devil. Like, th this is literally Satan manifest. You need to get rid of it. And not only is it the devil, it's the craftiest liar with the honest face. This is, it's going to be no easy task persuading other people that this idea of the human being is a truly rotten horrible concept that holds us in chains yeah because it doesn't look evil it just looks like you it yeah it just looks like you or anybody else it could be anywhere it could, it could be, be anyone it could be you it could be me it could be, it could be me it could be your love. It could be one. him. Oh it's man, like I'm gonna. Agent Smith. Whoever is editing this, please actually don't edit in Agent Smith. Edit in uh, the Meet the Spy TF2 video. <laughs> have you seen those? Yes, yes, I have. Oh my god, the spy one is hilarious. That would be your mother. <gasps> There's, there's actually something he touches upon in uh, the page before, which uh, Landstriker does have a note for. He talks about, uh, again, the subject is subservient to the predicate, the individual held to something universal. The rule is, against, is again protected by an idea, and the foundation of a new religion laid. This is a step forward in the religious and especially the Christian realm, not a step beyond it. The step beyond it leads into the unspeakable. For me, miserable language has no word. The word, the logos, logos, is for me a mere word. And this idea of the unspeakable, which uh, Landstriker notes, can uh, also be translated as nameless or inexpressible, is incredibly important to his uh, project. And he uh, discusses it, he discusses that part of it in a lot of depth within uh Stierner's critics because this is talking about this is actually going back to why he calls the individual the creative the nothing oh yeah this is the nothing part of the creative nothing it is unspeakable there's no word for it you cannot well he called something he also says you know he uses the word unique 
kind of just as a placeholder. There's no mere word that can describe the concept. In Stirner's Critics, he says it's a name and compares it to mm-hmm. Vicky or you know, to he uses the names of the people who was who are criticizing him there and that there's no real content to it beyond just being he are we ready to move on to my power before we move on to my power i want to read the last few lines of uh yeah the owner before it gets to my power but am i not at liberty to cl- to declare myself the entitler the mediator and my own self then it goes like this my power is my property my power gives me property my power am i myself and through it I am my property. And that sort of brings us into my power. He's putting this importance on my power and how it gives you things and it allows you to be you and it allows you to have yourself. So he starts off with this section on my power by defining for us again right. He wants to make absolutely sure that we understand what right is because he uses this definition and this understanding of right to contrast it with power he's essentially right. doing what he did at the start of owns by talking mm-hmm. about the thing we normally think of and normally want which he wants to say no i don't like that and contrast it with uh, his own thing right so freedom is the liberal ideal and ownness is the the egoist property and right is the liberal idea and power is the egoist conception and here there's a little bit of wordplay going on because right refers to both like rights like civil or political rights or human rights or what have you but also as in the right as in the rule of law um and also right as in morally right as opposed to something that is morally wrong. But he starts off here by saying that right is the spirit of society. If society has a will, this will is simply right. It exists only through right. But since it exists only by exercising a dominance over individuals, right is its sovereign will. All existing right is alien right. It is a right that someone gives me. So rights are foreign to you, they're given to you, they're bestowed upon you. Like I said earlier, they're guaranteed to you by a constitution, by a state. And this is especially, I I especially like this sort of a wordplay, because he's uh, sort of saying it's alien, but that's sort of contrasting it with the way most people talk of right as inalienable. But he's saying Mm -hmm. it's always alien from you, and never inalienable, because it's never yours it's never a thing you have but always something separate from you always something apart from you now on the next page on page 200 there's two bits here that i really liked whether i am in the right or not there is no judge other than myself about that others can only judge whether they agree with my right and whether it exists for them as a right too so here, Sterner's saying, right is subjective. I'm the only person who can judge me. If other people want to judge me, they can't. They can only judge for themselves whether they agree with me or not, right? Um, but their judgment is not a judgment they pass on me. It's a judgment they pass on their relationship to me. And he sort of restates this 
uh, over on page 203 when he says... Well, before we get there, all right. on page 200, he also says, let's take the matter another way. I am supposed to revere, revere sultanic right in the sultanate, the people's rights in the republic, canonical right in Catholic parishes, etc. I am therefore supposed to subordinate myself to these rights. I am supposed to regard them as sacred. So he says... You know, rights are something that we are subordinate to. They don't free us. You know, they they don't free us. us. Mm-hmm. So you wanted to take us to page two hundred three, where he uh, sort of restates what he does with wet, when he with the first part of page two hundred you were talking about. He goes, mm-hmm. I decide whether it is right in me. Outside me, there is no right. If it is right for me, then it's right. Possibly, this won't make it right for others. But that's their problem, not mine. They may defend I themselves. I love that. Yeah, I love that part. It's just like Stierno's going, ah, oh, that's your problem, not mine. <laughs> right. Like, literally going and using that phrasing, too. Yeah, the, uh, sorry, not sorry. <laughs> that's your problem, This is, not uh, mine. this for me, I think, really, I mean, this is Sterner. No one else could have written this, <laughs> you know? I decide whether it's right in me. If it's right for me, then it's right. If it is right for me, then it is right. There's no right outside of me. Now, this might not make a right for somebody else. That's their problem. If I decide something is right for me, then it is right. Now, uh, also on this page, he actually criticizes the communists, right? And he's saying, you know, whether nature or God or the people's choice gives me a right, it's it's all alien. It's all the same. It's all alien right. These are all rights that I did not give or take to myself. Now look at the communists. They say equal work entitles people to enjoy to equal enjoyment. And he says, no, equal work does not entitle you to it, but rather equal enjoyment alone entitles you to equal enjoyment. If you take enjoyment, it is your right. If, on the contrary, you only yearn for it without helping yourself to it, it still remains, as before, a well-earned right of those who are privileged for enjoyment. It is their right, as by helping yourself, it would become your right. When I read this, I was, when I reread this part, I was reminded of uh, Bernie Sanders' thing of always going, oh, anyone who works 40 hours a week should not be in poverty. And Right, it it's like, always with that qualifier. Yeah, and it's, and Stirner's saying, no, if I take enjoyment, then it's my right to take it. I don't need this equal amount of work. I don't need to be a working 40 hours a week to have this right all i need is to take the enjoyment for myself and make it my own right there's nothing that entitles me to enjoyment it's not my mere you know a lot of our uh leftists online will uh bring up the same criticism of bernie you know like uh you don't need to work 40 hours a week to not live in poverty. Your mere existence as a human being should entitle you to not have to live in poverty. And Sterner's saying, no, nothing entitles you to not live in poverty. Uh, the only thing standing between you and poverty is your power, you know, to exercise your will to not live in poverty. That's almost ex- what you just said is almost exactly a quote from Stirner later on, which in a part we uh, haven't read yet. Oh. <laughs> uh, Stirner criticizes Bernie before Bernie is even born. Well, the last part where you're talking about uh, 
you know, only your power separates you from uh, not being in poverty. Mm. Uh, this this bit's also uh, kind of interesting, uh, right? We have this idea that all men are created equal or all men are born equal, right? And Sterner's kind of criticizing that idea here. Uh, to establish this idea, you go back to the simplest thing and state that everyone by birth is equal to the other, namely a human being. And he says, I will grant you that everyone is born as a human being. Therefore, the newborns are equal to each other in this. Why are they? Only because they appear and act as nothing other than mere human children, naked little human beings. But they are therefore immediately different from those who have already made something of themselves and are no longer mere human children, but rather children of their own creation. The latter possess more than just birthrights, they have one rights. And he's basically so he kind of tears down the idea of birthrights here and says, no, you, you, you're not born with rights or entitled to rights or granted rights. You win them for yourself. You are children of your own creation. And he's again tackling this uh, difference he has already established between freedom and ownness, where freedom can only be destructive, but ownness is creative. And mm -hmm. this birthright, it's never going to be enough because you always need to create. You create yourself. You create these things around you. And you create these rights for yourself. You win them. And by doing so, you create them. Um, I, uh, I took a course on existentialism um, my senior year. I had to fill out some electives. <laughs> And uh, I decided to take a course on existentialism, and I'm glad I did because it was very interesting. Uh, I didn't take a lot of philosophy courses in college, and um, I really enjoyed reading Sartre and Kierkegaard and uh, Albert Camus and Nietzsche as well, actually. And I'm surprised that not once did Stirner come up in any of the discussions of our class because a lot of what he writes here is very much in line with existentialism and he was a contemporary of uh, kierkegaard's he was yes and they were writing sort of about very similar things from very different perspectives <laughs> absolutely uh i mean for one uh kierkegaard was not a pious atheist but a, a pious christian yeah <laughs> um but there's this one part in particular that uh was very existentialist to me when he's talking about the criminal uh people say that the penalty is the criminal's right i'm on page 207 but impunity is his right as well if he succeeds in his undertaking it serves him right and if he does not succeed it also serves him right you make your bed and lie in it <laughs> so well i and then he says if someone goes recklessly into danger and dies in them We'd probably say it serves him right. He wanted nothing better. Um, you know, you make your bed and lie in it. You create your own consequences through your actions. But if he and you must own them. Yeah, but if he overcame the dangers, i.e., his power was victorious himself. It ser it, he would also be in the right. If a child plays with a knife and cuts himself, it serves him what right. But if he doesn't cut himself, this also serves him right. He's, he, th this section, more than just being, you make the bed you lay in, and you have to own that, it also seems to me like he is arguing, he's, this is, this sort of shows how he's dealing with right. 
lots of people characterize what he uh, is arguing for as might makes right but he's mm-hmm. this really shows that it's absolutely not what he's trying to go for he's not saying might makes right but right makes right what right. is makes right there's <laughs> nothing else that can be right that can serve you right except what actually happened uh he's back to talking about states on the next page and i I thought this was, I'm going to read a little bit of background info first, but there's this one statement that was really profound that really stood out to me. He says, states last only so long as there is a ruling will, and this ruling will is considered synonymous with one's own will. The Lord's will is law. What good are your laws to you when no one follows them? What good are your commands when no one lets himself be commanded? For the state, it is absolutely necessary that no one have a will of his own. Again, your will as an individual must be in line with the will of the state. If someone had a will of their own, the state would have to exclude by imprisoning or banish this one or that one. If everyone had a will of their own, they would have to do away with the entire state. The state is not thinkable without domination and subjection or slavery, because the state must will to be the lord of all that it contains, and this will is called the will of the state. And this profound statement that really stood out to me is he says, the master is a shoddy product of the slave. If servility ceased, it would be all over for lordship. The state and uh, the power it commands over us cannot exist if no one listens to it, if no one obeys. Right. The, mas- the master requires someone to obey him to be the master. You cannot... So what, what Sterner is saying here is that slavery is a mindset. Well, not exactly. He's, not exactly. He's saying it's a, <laughs> slavery is a social... social uh, arrangement. Yeah, a social arrangement, which requires both parties to be an active participant. You can command all you want, but so long as but you need people who obey your commands for the slavery to work. It doesn't need to be everyone who obeys your commands to obey your command. You need enough people. You need right some yeah, amount of subjugation to ensure that everyone is subjugated. And someone may say that well, you know, the master has actual material power over the slave and uh you know, it's it's unreasonable to say that um you know the the master is a shoddy product of the slave and that all the slave needs to do to free himself is to stop listening to the master um of course that's unreasonable because they're you know the slave and the master do not exist in isolation they don't exist in a vacuum right but there needs to um, be someone who uh listens without requiring this direct subjugation the right there needs to be the for the in the south when there was these big plantations it was when slavery is institutionalized anywhere at any place in any time yeah there's these big slave plantations there's no way that the master in these slave plantations could directly control all of the uh, slaves using purely their power they had to have some of the slaves who would go and whip the other slaves and those had those essentially consented to that part they couldn't they if they had stopped obeying and there had been no one who was willing to take that position the slave masters would not have had power but then they may have had the power of the state backing them up right yes Um, you know the 
we see rudimentary police forces forming at, at this point in our country's history uh, for the express purpose of returning uh, runaway slaves to their plantations. But suppose if we zoomed out at this level, if everyone in this southern society stopped obeying the state... Then slavery would not have been possible. Slavery would not have been possible. The state itself would not have been possible. So... The state needs... I think... Go on. Yes. So the... Well, you get your thought out. The state needs someone to consent and to accept the power voluntarily for it to function. Slaves, slavery requires some voluntary rule for it to work. I think, um, you know, a, a common slogan we hear on the left is this idea of becoming ungovernable. ungovernable. <laughs> um, and I think that idea really resonates with what Stirner is saying here. You have nothing to lose but your chains. Mm-hmm. And your chains are of your own creation. Your own shoddy creation at that. A little bit later, he goes and he goes, and he says, Every state is a despotism. Whether the despot be one or many, or, as some like to imagine a republic, all be lords, i.e. play the despot over each other. This is the case every time when a given law... The will expressed, perhaps, in the opinion of the, a popular assembly, should be from then on law for the individual, to which he owes obedience, or towards which he has the duty of obedience. Even if one were to imagine the case where every individual in the people had expressed the same will, and through this a complete collective will came into being the matter would still be the same wouldn't i be bound to deign henceforth by my will of yesterday my will in this case would be frozen tiresome stability my creation namely a particular expression of will would have become my commander but i in my will i the creator would be hampered in my flow and my dissolution because i was a fool yesterday i must remain one for the rest of my life so, in state life, I am in the best case. I might as well be, say the worst case, a slave to myself. Because I was the willer yesterday, today I am willless. Yesterday voluntary, today involuntary. There's no case to Stirner where a state can be a free state. Not even if everyone, not even if there's consensus, that only provides you with voluntary rule voluntary rule for the moment but since the eye is transient since you're cons constantly dissolute since it's constantly being dissolved and recreated then it is no longer voluntary that you consent now doesn't mean you consent forever because that's not how consent works and you can see this sort of thing in for example how lots of capitalists view the capitalist worker relationship oh the worker consented to it but really the worker consented to it then but that doesn't mean the worker here must be bound by it now mm -hmm. um quite a bit later on page 216 he's talking about the idea of crime well he actually and starts talking about it here on 209 i think he gets to the meat of it around 216 but if there's any other passages you want to a, pull up there's a really good quote that lots of people like here on 209 sure uh the state practices violence yeah, sorry uh, 
again, the state practices violent. The individual should not do this. The state behavior is an act of violence. It calls its violence legal right. That of the individual crime. Crime, so the violence of the individual, is called. And he overcomes state violence only through crime. When he is of the opinion that the state is not above him, but that he is above the state. Yeah, I really liked that part as well. Um, state state violence is law, and individual violence is crime. <laughs> and you're going, said 216? Yeah, um, right from the top. The men of the revolution often spoke of the people's just revenge as its right. Revenge and right, therefore, coincide here. Is this behavior of an eye to an eye? The people cries that the opposing party has committed crimes against it. Can I assume that someone commits a crime against me without presuming that he must act as I see fit? In this action, I call right or good, etc. The deviating one is a crime. Thus, I think others must go toward the same goal with me. That is, I don't treat them as unique ones who carry their law in themselves and live by it, but as essences that should obey some rational law. I establish what the human being is and what acting in a truly human way means, and demand of everyone that this law become norm and ideal for him, failing which he will reveal himself as a sinner and a criminal. But the guilty are hit by the penalty of the law. One sees here how it is the human being that brings about the concepts of crime, sin, and with them that of right. A human being in whom I don't recognize the human being is a sinner, a guilty person. Yeah, it's... He's tying this idea of crime to these higher powers. You can only commit crime against something greater than yourself. Because if you were doing crime only against... with only you, then there's no crime there to be had. The crime... For crime to exist, there must exist something sacred against which to do a crime. Yeah, crime only makes sense in the context of the state or humanity, and not when you there's just you, when there's just the I. And you can see a way this ends up playing out in uh, Ayn Rand, who uh, she thought that uh, the that uh, your subjective desires. They were bad, and you should not follow them. Instead, to her, you need you need to follow the rational law, the rational self-interest. And, Boo! And that was ultimate what commanded to her. And you could never, you never were supposed to follow what you desired. Never supposed to act for yourself, but only for this rational self-interest, for what objectively you should want what reason commands of you, because to do otherwise to her would be to destroy the humanity in you. Well, that's exactly what we want to do. <laughs> well, yeah, of course. <laughs> but, and, that's, um, that was, and that wasn't Stirner's phrasing, that was her phrasing. Right. And Stirner, long before she was even born, was already critiquing that. Yeah. Uh, critiquing that objectivism, which we all know objectivity is bullshit. Exactly. Um, now we're going over an hour 20 here, so there's just one point I want to hit on before we wrap up. Um, so let me hit on this point, and then if you have anything you want to hit on. But I'm looking at page 220. 
And here he's talking about conflicts. And he makes a very interesting argument here. He says, people understand the significance of the conflicts too formally and weakly if they only want to dissolve them in order to make room for a unifying third thing. The conflict deserves rather to be intensified. As Jew and Christian, you are in too slight a conflict and are only arguing about religion. In religion, indeed, you are enemies, but in everything else, you remain good friends. And for example, as human beings, you're equal to each other. Nevertheless, everything else is also unlike in each, and you will only come to no longer conceal your conflict when you fully recognize it, and everyone asserts himself from head to toe as unique. Then the earlier conflict will certainly be dissolved, but only because a stronger one has taken it up into itself. Our weakness does not consist in this, that we are in conflict with others, but rather in this, that we are not fully so, that is to say, that we are not entirely divorced from them, or that we are looking for community, a bond, that in community we have an ideal, one faith, one God, one ideal, one hat for all. The last and most resolute conflict, he says, is that of unique against unique. As unique, you no longer have anything in common with the other, and therefore also nothing divisive or hostile. You don't seek to be in the right against him or against him before a third party. The conflict disappears in complete divergence or uniqueness. This could indeed be considered the new common feature or parity, only the parity here consists precisely of the disparity and is nothing but disparity. So I thought that was interesting. Uh, in order to overcome the conflicts between each other, we have to intensify them. <laughs> yeah, we take these small conflicts and we recognize that they're just a minor difference, that I'm in that one person is Christian, one person is Jew, that's only really a small difference compared to all of the things that actually differentiate them. And the only way to actually break down that conflict between Jew and Christian, between capitalist and worker, is to intensify the conflict until there is no, there is not these broad groups, and there's only unique against unique and this allows us to have a it creates a new co new conflicts between each other but it also allows us to find a sort of parity of disparity we're recognizing our real differences which allows us to put aside these false ones these small insignificant differences that's uh that's pretty much all that I wanted to hit on. Is there anything Well I, I sort of wanted to hit on something that he's touching on a lot here when he's talking about the criminal. And he's talking he talks a lot about punishing the criminal. And he sort of keeps on critiquing this idea of punishing the criminal. Sorry. I uh, back when we were talking about uh, people say the penalty is the criminal's right. That's sort of arguing against that we have to punish criminals for what they've done, or we have to uh, treat this as we have this sort of right to punish them and 
they have a right to have this punishment done to them. And he sort of keeps on touching on this whenever he mentions punishing the criminal. He's always talking about it as a contingent thing. It's dependent on our actions, and we don't have to do it. Punishing the cr criminals is sort of a choice we make, not something we need to do. And so it ends up being something that we can put in our power rather than something which yeah, we give to right. All right. That's my power. Yep. Before we started recording, I said... I made a remark about how this section that we covered is kind of short and not quite as dense as previous sections that we've covered, but we've managed to almost record an hour and a half of material anyway. And there's a lot we didn't cover. There's a lot that we didn't cover, yeah. And the next section is going to be much, much longer than this one. The next section, what's that again? My Intercourse. My intercourse. That's over a hundred pages. We may break that up into two, maybe three episodes, but it's longer I... than everything up to the free was. We're definitely not gonna cover it in just one episode. So you guys have you you guys have at least well what do we th at least four sterner episodes left before we wrap this up. Because at least two of my intercourse one to at least one to wrap it up and then at least one looking at Steiner's critics yep all right so you have to put up with us for the entire month of september it looks like and then and then we'll move on to the next premium mini series which looks like is going to be coming out of culture so get ready for that one but next week we'll be discussing the first part of my intercourse and we'll probably have a better of idea of whether that's going to be two or three episodes by then. Uh, until then, Vicky, thank you very much for joining me. No problem. Thank you very much and for having me on. Absolutely, of course. This has been the Discourse Collective. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for subscribing, being a patron. We'll see you guys next week with some more, some more Sterner. Peace out. Peace. Tough ghost, tough crowd, tough love. Sit down, sit down, sit down.